Well, good morning, Redpoint. Good to see all of you. My name's Grant, if you don't know me, if you haven't met before. And today, like Shane said, we are starting a two-month preaching journey through the book of James, which I think is a very, very exciting thing. And we are excited to preach through this book together over these next two months, throughout April and May, together as a church. And sometimes what we do as a church is we'll preach topically which means we'll get a whole bunch of themes in one series or maybe one theme that we want to focus on, like prayer or the Holy Spirit or something like that. But sometimes we go through a book of the Bible like we're going to do over the next two months. And what we're going to do is go through the book of James. We're going to go chapter by chapter, idea by idea through this book to really let the words that James has written down, that God has given James to give to us, we're going to really plug that into our community, into our heads and hearts together as a church. And I really want to invite you as we go along this journey through James together to read through this book. Now, it's a two-month journey, so I'm not just saying read it through once. It's five chapters of the Bible, three pages in my Bible. Why don't you read this book through a number of times? I would hope that as we go through this series, every single week, each one of us would be going through James again and again and again, getting familiar with the book, getting familiar with each chapter, each big idea, each theme, each verse, and that we would really absorb those, and that we find at the end of these two months that our heads and our hearts are full of the teaching that James gives to us through this book. So while we're going through it, I want to encourage you, would you also memorize some of the verses? So as we read through again and again and again, and as God starts to highlight some things to us and they stand out to us, or you think, Sheesh Grant or Shane or Brendan or whoever preached a great message on that, I want to memorize that so I can preach that to myself, so I can remind myself, so I can tell other people, why don't you memorize some of the verses as we go through this book? And beyond just reading and memorizing, can we pray this book through too? Maybe tomorrow morning as you get up, you're going to open James chapter 1 and start to go through it and something that's going to stand out to you and you're going to pray that for yourself and pray that for your church. I think, well, this church, I think that would be such a wonderful thing. And on Thursday night, we were at the Coles place. We had our prayer meeting and what we did is we opened our Bibles to the book of James and we prayed through the book. We prayed through each scripture. We prayed through each theme and asked that God would form the things that James writes about inside each one of our lives and inside of us as a community as a whole. And in two months' time, after all of these things have happened, at the end of May, we're going to know the book of James together as a church. We're going to have read it and thought it through and prayed it through and heard it preached on, and we're going to own that book inside of ourselves. We're going to understand it. We're probably going to love it. And for some of you, well, hopefully for all of us, God is going to meet with us and speak to us and do some pretty profound things in us as we go through this book together. So I want to encourage you, if you're here today for the first time, if you're just visiting us, why don't you stick it out for the next two months? Why don't you come Sunday after Sunday, and as God meets with us and speaks, and as we build chapter upon chapter, I trust that God would do something in our lives. And I was thinking maybe for some of you who are new here, you would become a follower of Jesus over these two months. You would begin the journey of living for Jesus, of knowing what it is to know him and walk with him and live out his ways. You would understand salvation and you would experience that in your life. Maybe you would hear God speak to you from his word or through one of these messages, a profound specific word for you that just hits something, um, hits a nerve in your heart and you just know, wow, that is the voice of God to me. Or maybe you've been following God for a long time and as we go through this, God would mature you and grow you and help you to go forward in your faith. Whatever it is, I'm really excited for this journey together and I hope that you would join me in being excited and join me in getting this book into your heart. So we're going to read through James 1 verse 1 to 18 today. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along with the screen just behind me. And we're going to go through a big chunk which will introduce us to this book this morning. 
So James 1 starts and says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him who asks, ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother (laughs) boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. That's James 1, verse 18 to, uh, 1 to 18. We'll finish this chapter next week. But what I thought is before we get into this passage, and as we start the series today, I want to introduce you to James. If we're going to really invest a lot of time into understanding this letter, we better know the author. We better know who he is, what he's about, what his background is, a little bit of his story, so that we can understand and get into this text with a little bit more context. So who is James? And that's a really important question, obviously, but it's even more important because there's between four and eight different Jameses mentioned throughout the New Testament. So which James is this? The Jameses are mentioned about 40 different times throughout the New Testament. So we really want to get a a good idea of which James we're talking about when we come to this letter. And you might have picked it up from our slide already, but amazingly, the James who wrote this letter is Jesus's younger brother. And we get the idea from the lists of uh, Jesus's different brothers and sisters that James was the oldest brother. So Jesus' younger brother, but the oldest of the brothers and sisters in the family of Jesus. And what I think is such a cool thing, Jesus never writes a book or a letter as far as we know, but his brother did. His younger brother, the one who probably knew him best in the family, writes a five-chapter letter that we've got today. His brother, the brother of Jesus, the Lord, the Savior. And we've got that to read and go through and study and understand. Now, I don't know what you would think growing up with a brother like Jesus would be like. I was trying to imagine this, and I was thinking, you go to a pool party with all of your mates, and there's Jesus walking on water, kind of amazing, all the kids at the party. Or you're at the tuck shop waiting in line, and there's Jesus on the side. He's got hot dogs and Coke, and he's multiplying them and handing them out to the masses. Or maybe you think when Jesus had his school photos taken or the family photos, he was always the kid with a halo. I don't know what you think Jesus was like as he grew up. But one of the things we learn from the scriptures, and I'll show you in a second, is that Jesus' brothers and sisters did not believe he was who he said he was. And that's a pretty profound thing. 
That makes me think maybe Jesus wasn't this glowing Christ. Not that he was sinful or imperfect in any way, but I don't think his power and miracles and healings and his teachings came out straight away. We see in John 7 verse 5, it says, For not even his brothers believed in him. There were some people who believed, a lot who didn't, but even his brothers didn't believe. And then in Mark 3 verse 21, even more telling, it says, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. It's not just that Jesus' family didn't believe he was who he said he was. They thought he was nuts. So let me try and set the scene for you a little bit. Jesus is 30 years old. He's grown up in a family in a specific town. He's joined the family business, and he's a carpenter now. And he's been making tables and chairs and benches and whatever else a carpenter in that day would make. And now at 30 years of age, out of the blue, out of nowhere, it seems, he starts to be preaching and teaching and gathering crowds around him. And people are coming from far and wide to hear Jesus teach and do miracles and heal the sick and cast out demons. And it's a big deal. People are gathering from all around. It's like all the news crews would have been there trying to get an interview with Jesus or one of his brothers and sisters. And beyond that, Jesus Christ is trending on social media. And all of the friends of Jesus' brothers and sisters are coming to them and saying, hey, what's up with your brother? Like <laughs> the carpenter, all of a sudden this guy's doing all of this stuff and he's famous. I don't really understand what's going on. And we get this um, idea in Matthew 13 of what the people of Jesus' hometown thought was going on. It says in verse 55 and 56, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? It's like all the people from his hometown who've grown up and gone to the same high school as Jesus and seen him become a man are going, this is really out of the blue. We don't understand what is going on here. Add to the fact uh, to the fact that Jesus is calling himself God, saying, I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah, I'm the promised one, I'm the creator of the heavens and earth, I'm the one who will judge the living and the dead, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is making some fairly big claims about himself, and he's saying, yes, I am the one that everyone has been looking forward to, the promised one, you know, the chosen one. That's what Jesus is saying about himself, and he's getting into a lot of trouble with some of the religious leaders who on a number of occasions are trying to take him out. I I say all of this to make this point. For Jesus' brothers and sisters, he would have been that embarrassing uncle that you don't really want your kids to spend time with because you know that they're going to come back and they're going to be asking you awkward and uncomfortable questions and you're going to constantly be having to correct what Jesus is saying to your kids. He was this awkward uncle. What do we do with Jesus? We're embarrassed by Jesus. We really just with Jesus would shut up. Almost like they were thinking to themselves, you know, Jesus had a little bit too much time alone in his carpentry workshop, and now he's gone a little bit loopy. And maybe you're in the same boat here today. I was thinking about this. Maybe you're sitting here today, and you think, I don't know if I can believe that this man, Jesus, was who he said he was. Do I really believe that he was God, that God became a man, or that when Jesus died on the cross, that was for the forgiveness of the sins of the world? Can I believe that? And if you're here today and you're exploring Christianity or you're asking these questions or you don't know if you believe this or maybe you completely reject it, that's okay. You're in the same boat as Jesus' brothers and sisters who outrightly thought he was absolutely nuts and he was out of his mind. But then something changed. And the scriptures don't fill in a lot of the detail here, so we don't actually know when this happened, the event, the reason, what went on. But something changed. And Jesus' brothers and sisters, who thought that he'd gone loopy, 
all of a sudden become his followers and they believe in him and they start to preach his message and share it with people as far and wide as they can. And it seems to be around the time of his death. Now for us, and I'm saying if you're a follower of Jesus here today, the cross is such a beautiful thing. We actually celebrated it at Easter time. When we look at the cross, we say, wow, God has revealed his love to us in big, bold letters. And when we look at the cross and think of the Easter story, we say, God is so committed to me and God loves me so much and God uh, cares about me and wants to know me so much that he was willing to put himself through all of that stuff on the cross so that I could have a relationship with him. For us, the cross is a symbol of hope. But imagine what the cross would have been for Jesus' family. They would have probably been there. I mean, we know from the scriptures that Mary was there when Jesus was crucified, but I can only imagine that Jesus' brothers and sisters would have been there too. I mean, it seems like they had an idea that this was going to happen. There have been a few attempts on Jesus' life already. He's really stirring the pot with all of these religious leaders. And I can imagine they saw this coming. And when Jesus gets kind of pulled out to be crucified, I imagine as many of the brothers and sisters as possible would have been there with Mary and would have watched this event happen where Jesus was crucified. And for us, we celebrate that moment and we think about it as a moment of beauty. For them, it would have been a moment of horror. It would have been a devastating moment as they watched their brother or son nailed to a cross and murdered. He was naked. It must have been so awkward and shameful and embarrassing. He was covered in blood. He had nails knocked through his wrists. He had a crown of thorns through his head. He'd been whipped so he was bloody and ripped open everywhere. And this is your loved one, your brother, your son. It must have been such an awful moment for them. And then he dies. It's not just that they've gone through this horrifying moment watching Jesus suffer, but now he's dead. And they wrap him up and clean him up and they put him in a tomb and they have the funeral. And I imagine for James, Jesus' oldest brother, this must have been a moment for him to really step it up. You know, he's the oldest in the family now. He's got to care for Mary. He's got to love her. He's got to take care of the other brothers and sisters. I'm sure even though he was grieving and going through pain and maybe waking up with these nightmares in the middle of the night with these images of Jesus dying flashing through his mind, I imagine he's carrying the weight of his family thinking, okay, come on, James, you can't cry. You've got to be a big man. Stiff upper lip. Let's look after Mary. Let's look after the kids. It's our time. And they're all together, and they're going through this absolutely devastated that Jesus, their brother, is dead. And then three days later, out of nowhere, Jesus rises from the dead. He's resurrected. He comes back to life. And we don't have the detail about all of the meetings of what went on, but Paul the Apostle captures one moment which is significant for us in this study. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 7, he says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So James is going through all of this stuff, grief, responsibility, uh, devastation, and then three days later, Jesus is just there in front of him. They've just had his funeral, and now Je uh, Jesus is standing in front of James, and I don't know what his first words to him were. I don't know if he just kind of waved and said, hi, James, good to see you, or what Jesus would have said to him in that moment, but I reckon James was absolutely shocked. And James, who did not believe in Jesus, who thought Jesus was out of his mind, is all of a sudden confronted by the reality that Jesus, his brother, who he's grown up with, who claims to be God and the Savior of the world, who he watched get nailed to a cross, bleed and die, who he buried in a tomb, is now standing in front of him, absolutely alive, full of beans, and speaking to him. Wherever James was on the spectrum of faith between complete unbeliever and sold-out devout follower of Jesus, the switch flipped in that moment. 
James went from zero to hero. He went to 120 just like in two seconds. James was, was sold out. I imagine in that second he goes, my Lord and my God. I cannot believe it was all true. I am so sorry I doubted you for even a second. Whatever it is you want from me, I am in. And he would have begun to worship his brother, who before he would have probably given noogies to and they would have played around with, you know. Now he's praising him as his Lord and as his God. Quite a significant moment, I can imagine, for him and for the rest of the family. And we read this interesting fact in Acts 1 verse 14. After Jesus has uh, been resurrected and ascended to heaven, we see there's this prayer meeting. It's the core group of the first church plant ever. 120 people in the city of Jerusalem. They're in a room and they are praying for the Holy Spirit to be poured out. And who's there? It says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. The first core group of the first church plant ever was filled with Jesus' family. And that's quite a big thing for me. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, the one who gave birth to Jesus, who breastfed Jesus, who would have changed Jesus' nappies, who would have taught Jesus to crawl and walk, who would have fed him, who would have clothed him, who would have taught him so many of the things that he knew, is now in a prayer meeting praying confessing Jesus is the savior of the world. And Jesus' brothers who before had completely rejected him are in that same prayer meeting and they're saying, you know what? We grew up with this man, this boy. We played in the sand pit with him. We um, played pool cricket with him when we got a little bit older. And now this same Jesus we are saying is the sinless one. You know what? We watched him. He never, ever, ever sinned. He is perfect. He is all of the things that he says he is. He is God, the Savior of the world. And they're in that prayer meeting praying and crying out for the Spirit to be poured out on them. Why? Because they're sold out believers of his. They're going to follow him because he is who he says he is. And I think this is one of the strongest arguments for why the message of Jesus is true. And if you're asking questions today, I know I can't convince you with any wise ideas that I might have, but I just want to ask you to consider this for a moment. Jesus' family, who knew him better than anyone else in the whole world, who watched him grow up, who spent time with him in a ton of different situations, are there in this prayer meeting, sold out. They believe that he is who he says he is. He is the Savior of the world. And if his family believed this message, then I believe we should too. I love my sister. Her name is Chelsea. She's uh, 28 years old. She's got two beautiful little girls. And yesterday, they actually just collected the keys for their home that they're moving into soon, which is very exciting for them. But I know her well. I love her. I'm a big fan of my sisters. I enjoy her a lot. And I know her better than most people, I suppose. I've watched her grow up. And I care about her deeply. But there is nothing in me at all that thinks she is perfect or that she is God. My sister died tomorrow, I would mourn. I would be absolutely devastated. And <laughs> I don't really know how I would handle it, but I know that I would not begin to worship her. I've seen my sister at her worst, maybe better than anyone else. I know her flaws and her faults and her imperfections, and I can tell you she is sinful. But Jesus' brothers and sisters and mother are there in a room worshiping him and praying to him and saying he is who he says he is. He is perfect. He is the savior of the world. Before they had doubted and they had watched their brother crucified, but now something has changed. The switch has been flipped and they are absolutely sold out that he is who he says he is and they have become his followers. I think that's a pretty powerful thing.
the family of Jesus is changed forever. James, his slightly younger brother, becomes a pastor and writes the book of James that we're studying now. If you didn't know that today, that any of Jesus' family existed, or that they'd written any of the books of the Bible, maybe that comes as a shock. Well, I've got another one for you. Jesus' brother Jude also became a pastor, and he writes one of the books of the Bible right at the end. And we see that Jesus' family are radically shaped by this message and give their lives to make sure that it spreads as far and wide as possible. And now as we come to look specifically at this man, James, we've got the gift of what the scriptures say and of what church history has to say to tell us just a little bit more about his life. James, we already know, uh, kind of began his Jesus journey as a skeptic and as an unbeliever. But quite quickly around the cross, he becomes one of his most passionate followers and one of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem. It seems like Peter was the number one leader at the church in Jerusalem, leading that church. And that quite quickly, James was like the number two guy who would take over the church from Peter in Jerusalem. Also, James was never one of the 12. He wasn't one of Jesus' disciples. I think we've already covered that. But in Galatians 1 verse 19, it tells us he was considered an apostle among the rest of the the apostles. He was a significant spiritual leader. And maybe the best way that I can explain this is in this way. We've probably all heard of Paul the Apostle. Paul, probably one of the greatest Christians of all time. He writes more Bible books, I think, than anyone else. He would have taken the gospel to more places, started more churches in his time, I think, than anyone else. What an incredible man of God. And Paul has this incredible encounter, if you don't know. Paul hated Christians. He hated the message of Jesus, and he was going around persecuting and killing Christians, and he was on his way to an area called Damascus when he has this incredible moment. Jesus appears to him, and I'm not saying this in like a metaphorical kind of symbolic way. He sees Jesus. Jesus comes. He sees him physically in a real tangible way, and Jesus speaks to him, and I don't mean in an internal audible way. I mean he hears the words of Jesus ringing in his ears. He sees his face, and Jesus speaks to him and tells him the gospel. He tells him that he is real, and he commissions him and gives him a task and sends him out with this purpose. And Paul spends about three years in and around Arabia, kind of beginning his ministry. And then he does something that is so profound. Paul goes to Jerusalem and he decides to submit his life to three men, the pillars, he calls them, of the church in Jerusalem. Peter, who led the church, John, Jesus' best friend, and James, Jesus' brother. Paul has this radical encounter where he sees God, where God speaks to him, where God shows him the message of the gospel, and where God gives him something to do. And you know what he does? He goes to the spiritual leaders in Jerusalem and says, guys, I want to submit my life to you. I want to tell you what's happened to me. I want to let you know what God has done, what he's said, but I want to ask you for your input, and I want to ask you if you think what I'm saying is okay. Now, I just want to take a pause quickly there. That is a radical thing. I've never seen Jesus like that. I've never heard him speak to me in such a significant way. Paul does, and Paul still goes to some of the spiritual leaders and says, do you think what I hear God saying is okay? Are you, are you comfortable with what God is saying to me? Are you comfortable that I follow that out? And I just wanna say, this is a spiritual principle that I think we need to put into place in our lives and in this church, is that we submit the big decisions of our lives to spiritual leaders. 
And I know some of you are going to hear that and you're going to say, Grant, that is such a controlling thing. Don't try and do that. But I want to say we are warring in our culture, in our culture of independence and individualism, where we don't want to submit our lives to anyone else at all. But we see here that this is something that the apostles of Jesus did. The ones who heard God speak so clearly, who encountered him in these radical ways, they still went to leaders and said, what do you think of my plans? And I want to encourage us as we seek God on what to do, as we pray, that we wouldn't just say, I've heard God and go about it, but that we would submit our plans to those who are in spiritual authority over us, and that we would do this to fight the independence and individualism of the uh, culture around us, and that we would live as a a different community, a counter-cultural community that lives out the ways of God and puts these spiritual principles to life. And we see in this story that James is one of those three pillars that Paul goes to, Peter, John, and James. He is one of the most significant voices in the church at that time. Jesus' brother playing a huge role there, a man of stature, of authority, and of significance. And as we come to this letter here, I want to ask you, Redpoint Durban, would you open your hearts big and wide up to whatever James is going to say to us through the words of this letter? He is a man who we should listen to, not just a brother of Jesus, an apostle, a man who God spoke to to give us these words. And as he writes and as we read and as we listen, would we put into place the things that he says? Would we allow our lives to be reformed and reshaped by these words? Would we be encouraged by these words. I want to tell you two more things about James before we get into the book. James had a few nicknames. I've kind of told you already that Paul called him a pillar, so okay, we can call that one of his nicknames. Church history records that they called him James the Just, and I really love that. I mean, obviously, he was a man of incredible character and a man that was respected by the early church. But the third nickname, the nickname I like the most, is they called him Old Camel Knees, and that might sound like a bit of a weird name, but James was known as a man of prayer. And he would get down on his knees and he would cry out to God for people to come to know him. And he would speak to God. And uh, one of the things I was thinking as I prepared is that maybe James was a man who spoke more to Jesus after he died than before. Isn't that an interesting thought? James spent a lot of time on his knees. And as I think about what his knees must have looked like, swollen, knobbly, haggard, horrible, torn up knees. I imagine he wasn't a man who wore shorts much at all, but this was a man of prayer. And as we come to this letter, to this a book written by the brother of Jesus, would we see this as um, the words written of a man of prayer, a man who knew God, a man who was wise, a man who was highly respected by the early church. So we can joke around a little bit and say, how are you enjoying this letter by all camel knees? This letter, the book of James, is one of the oldest New Testament letters, which means it was one of the first New Testament letters to be written. They actually think it's between this and Galatians. One of those two was the first letter to be written that we find in the New Testament today. It was probably written in the early 40s uh, to mid 40s, so around 10 years after Jesus' crucifixion. And the primary theme of the book of James is about living out our faith, or as it says in chapter uh, 1, being a doer of the word, not a hearer only. As I was preparing for today, I saw one church named their series through the book of James, The End of Hypocrisy. And I thought that was such a cool title. If this book is all about living out our faith and what that practically looks like in all of life, The End of Hypocrisy is a brilliant title to call their series. 
So the reason is that so many people in our culture today reject the church and resist the church because the church is full of a bunch of hypocrites. And I think that's really true, sadly. There's so many people who take on the name of Christian and are willing to say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, but their lives look nothing like the teachings that Jesus gives us. And as James goes, James goes through his letter, he has no time for hypocrites. He has got plenty of time for serious men and women who want to follow Jesus and live for Jesus and obey Jesus and honor him and his teachings. But he doesn't have much time for hypocrites or people who are being fake about this. James is writing to us, about what true religion looks like. And he is calling us to live out a radical faith following his older brother, Jesus. The book of James is written in a really punchy and direct style. We're gonna go through James chapter one very, very briefly. But as we go through this, you'll see that there are a whole bunch of different topics that he just hits quickly, quickly, quickly. And some of the commentators actually think the whole book feels a bit disjointed because he jumps from this point to this, to this, to this. But this book is something like the Proverbs of the New Testament, a book filled with wisdom, practical down-to-earth truth that we can put into practice in our lives very easily. And this book of James, the younger brother of Jesus, starts with this verse that I want to highlight, James 1 verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. And I love about this that James, the brother of Jesus, starts this letter calling himself a servant. And I think that is such a humble, amazing thing. I actually think he's trying to set us an example and in a way provoke us and challenge us by giving himself that title because that's the only title he starts with. Paul often starts his letter and saying, Paul, an apostle, a preacher, this or that, whatever. James just says, I'm just a servant of Jesus. That's who I am. I'm just a servant of Jesus. And we've seen already what kind of man he was. We could have, he could have started and said, James, a pillar of the early church, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, old camel knees, the prayer warrior. He could have written all of these things about himself or even just said, hey, I'm the younger brother of Jesus, which I think would instantly give him an amazing authority. They do think that probably everyone who read this letter knew instantly, oh, this is Jesus' brother James writing. But it's amazing that he starts with this. And you've got to see this for a second. James was the guy who slept on the lower bunk bed growing up with Jesus at the top. That's who he is. He knows Jesus. He's hung out with Jesus. He's played with Jesus. But now he doesn't just say, listen, I'm James, the brother of Jesus. He says, I am James, the servant of Jesus, who is the Lord of all creation, and he is the promised Christ. That's what James is saying here. He's saying that he is amazed by who Jesus is, that he worships him, that he follows him, and that he loves him. And as James writes this, I want to ask you today, do you see yourself as a servant? I think that's like a challenging thing in our culture because being a servant isn't a thing of honor. But do you see yourself as a servant? Do you see yourself as a servant of Jesus, servant of God, servant of his church, servant of the people in this room here today? Do you think being a servant is too lowly for you? Or are you willing to serve those who are different to you? Maybe those who are a bit lower than you, at least in your estimation. Or even are you willing to serve those who hurt you in the past, who've rejected you, who've caused you pain? Are you willing to serve God with your money and with your time and with the gifts he has given you and with the energy you have? Are you willing like James to say, I am a servant of Jesus and whatever it is that he asks from me, that I will do. In chapter one, James goes through a whole bunch of stuff, but it is so punchy. I just want to give you six points, six 
uh, little comments which tell us what this book is all about. Point number one, count it a joy when you go through hard times because God can use suffering powerfully for the good. Point two, pray for wisdom that God would make you wise. Point three, being rich or poor doesn't count for anything in the scheme of eternity. Point four, God will reward you if you persevere through tough times. God does not tempt us. And lastly, every good and perfect gift is from God the Father, especially his salvation. Those are the six big ideas that James is taking us through in the first chapter of this letter. Quite profound. I encourage you to go read them through and think them through and pray them through more. But I think the way I wanted to end this morning is by telling you how James's life ended before we get into the second part next week. And after James writes this letter in the early 40s, Anno Domini, he has about 20 years of carrying on leading and preaching and teaching and pastoring and doing all the stuff that God has called him to do. And then around 62 or 63 AD, James is martyred for his faith. It seems like they, and I'm not 100% sure who they are, take him up to the top of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple. And I can only imagine that there was a huge crowd of people down below all watching the scene, probably talking and gossiping and shouting, some cheering on, some screaming, shocked that this is going on, because James is about to be thrown from the top. And then they launch James off the top of the temple, and he plummets to the ground and smashes down. But James is a really tough guy. And he's still not dead. Hard to keep one of Jesus' family members down. But as he starts to get up, they start hurling stones at him. And they beat him. And they kill him. And you just think to yourself, wow, Mary has to go to another funeral. Another member of their family has been killed. And you know what I think is so incredible? Is that uh, James probably would have had a say in who his successor was in the church. And it ended up being another one of his brothers. So get this. Jesus starts the movement. Jesus, who is God himself, comes along and is preaching the gospel and is nailed to a cross, killed, buried, resurrected. James carries on leading in the church. He's thrown off the temple and killed. And now Jesus' next brother steps up. And I think that's quite an amazing thing. So again, we have to ask ourselves, why are these people willing to put themselves through this? There's absolutely no motive that I can see as to why you would do this unless you are 100% convinced. Jesus is who he says he is. He is the savior of the world. He is God himself, the creator of the heavens and the earth. There was no fame in it for them. There was no glory. There was no wealth that they would get. Some pastors today can earn a lot of money, but I think for them in that day, they wouldn't have earned anything. And I think we look at this, what they would have had to have expected was death. They've already seen Jesus killed. Now they see James killed. The next guy's got to expect he's going to be taken out too. But it's like Jesus' family was saying, we don't mind whatever the cost is. We will pay it to follow Jesus because he is who he says he is. And I think beyond that, there was maybe a little bit of a resistance and a resilience in them that they said, you know what? You can kill us, but all you do is send us to be with our older brother, Jesus. What an amazing family. Now today, as I share that story and as I talk about Mary and James and Jude and the other brothers of Jesus and this amazing family, I do want you to admire this family. And for some of you in this room, you're going to have children 
And those children will be your greatest spiritual investment. You're gonna invest your time and energy and teaching into them, and you know what? They will go so much further than you will, and they will do more for God than you will. And that's fine, because God has called you to faithfully invest into them. Some of us are gonna invest into other people's lives, and over time we will see them do amazing things for God, and maybe we won't, that's fine because maybe that's what God has called us to do. Mary and Joseph, well, Joseph doesn't get much glory in the Bible. He doesn't get spoken about too much these days, but we're amazed to see the kind of kids that he um, raised up. And I do want you to admire this family today, and I do want you to have faith that God could use you and your family. But beyond that, I don't just want you to admire this family. I want to invite you to join this family. I want to say to you that Jesus is calling us to be part of his family with God as our father, with Jesus as our older brother, and James and Jude and the whole gang can be thrown into. Jesus says in Mark 3 verse 35, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And I think there's an amazing opportunity here as we look at the life of James and as we go through this letter together to come and join the family of God that like Jude and James and Mary, that we would think on the cross and we would think on Jesus' sacrifice and we would say, it is the truth. It is as he said it is. He is who he said he was. And I'm gonna follow this Jesus with everything I have, with all of my life, because he is worthy. So my call to all of us today is will you join the family of God? Will you follow Jesus as part of the family of God? And will you live out your faith as James calls us to follow Jesus. Can we stand together? I'd ask Garthy and the band to lead us in a song now, but I think maybe you guys can just play. I don't think we're going to sing it through, but maybe I can just pray for us as a community as we end here. So I think there's three things to take from today. If you want to ask God for wisdom, I want to pray that God would make us wise. Secondly, as the main theme of this book is to live out our faith, if you want to live out your faith more fully, you need the help of God to do that. I want to pray that for us. And if today you are not part of the family of God and you want to join the family, I want to pray that. So can we close our eyes? I'd love us to respond to God in our hearts and I guess just with our prayers. So Jesus, we look to you as our older brother and we worship you. I thank you for the example of your younger brother, James, Lord. I thank you for how he can spur us on and encourage us. And I really thank you, Lord, for the letter that we have in front of us. And I ask you, Lord, as we go through this, that you would teach us some incredible truth. I really, really pray, Lord, that you would speak to us and shape us. And I pray as I went through those six points for people in different places in life, that you would help each of us to live for you. I pray for those who are desperate for wisdom, that you would give them wisdom, Lord. I pray as a community that you would make us wise and understanding and insightful and discerning. And I pray for those of us here who um, are going through a hard time, that you would give us the energy to persevere and hold fast through difficulty, Lord. Would your grace be on us in all of those things as a community. And I pray, Lord, for those of us here today who need to join the family of God. I pray that they would come. If you today want to begin the journey of following Jesus, I, I just want to give you a template prayer that you can pray to give words to maybe what that looks like. So you're welcome to follow me in praying this. But 
Jesus, as I hear this message of your cross and of your family, I'm in. I want to follow you. I want to ask you to forgive me of my sin. I want to ask you to forgive me of my skepticism and my doubt. And I ask you to fill me with your spirit, to wash me clean and forgive me of the things I've done in the past, and to adopt me and bring me into your family. I thank you, Lord, that you would be my father, and Jesus, that I would know and follow you like your brother James did. I pray, Lord, that your hand would be on this community and that you would bless us. Garthy, why don't you lead us in that song and then we'll go out. I heard a thousand stories of what they think you're